Uh, this morning we're going to start a two-week study in the book of Jude. Uh, I'm going to preach through the first seven verses this morning and then the remaining 18 next week. So what we're going to do this week is this week we're going to look at the why of Jude. We're going to look at why Jude wrote. Um, Jude wrote for a very specific reason. He did write into a very specific situation, uh, but I believe it is a situation that carries forward. Uh, the Holy Spirit has given us the book of Jude as well. Um, so it is not just a situational letter, uh, but I believe it is very important and a, a book that we need to be concerned about. Next week, we're going to look at the how. We're going to look at why Jude wrote this week, and next week we're going to look at the how that goes along with why Jude wrote. Because once we know why we need to contend for the faith, we'll have to know how to contend for the faith. D.J. Rouston has labeled Jude the most neglected book in the New Testament. And Thomas Schreiner, on his commentary of First and Second Peter and Jude, has agreed. And he says that its brevity, which is only 25 verses long, is part of the reason that it's neglected. There are also some strange quotations. If you've read through the book of Jude, there are stuff that we don't find in our Bible. Um, he quotes the first book of Enoch. And he also um, quotes the assumption of Moses. But another reason that Schreiner gives that Jude is a very neglected book is if you read through Jude, you see that he is not shy on his pronouncement of judgment. And as we heard downstairs, that our culture has become one of autonomy. It has become one of subjective experience being the basis for truth. And in an attempt, in our attempt to have love reign supreme, we have a culture that is no longer able to pass judgment on anyone. Now, when I say passing judgment, I am not talking about the judgment that we place on people for superficial things. I'm talking about judging someone on ethnicity. I'm not talking about the judgment for gender, age, social standing, political views, economical means, educational levels, or the things of the, like that. What I am judging or judging people based on those categories, I believe falls into what James in James and James 2 says that showing partiality. We're not to show partiality on anyone for anything. And if we judge based on those things that people have no control over, such as race and ethnicity and political views and and their social standing, that we are falling into the sin of partiality and it is not acceptable as Christ followers. I believe that the judgment that Jude passes forth in his letter is coming from a heart of love. And it's coming from a posture of warning. I say that because Jude is very explicit in warning those whom he is writing to that what they believe can, will, and does have dire consequences if what they believe is not the truth. So with that, we're going to read the first seven verses of Jude, and then we're going to look at what I believe Jude is telling us. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, 
who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us, that you would open our eyes to see the extreme importance of this message that Jude wrote, not only back then, but now. Father, that we don't just brush over this book because of its shortness, that we don't just brush over this book because of the the weird illusions that it has in it. Father, that we don't just brush over it because the judgment is hard to hear, but that we understand that Jude is writing from a position of love, warning us that we are not free to just believe whatever we want to believe. Lord, that your word that you have set down is absolute truth. And that we as followers of Christ have no choice but to come under submission. So, Father, be with me now as I speak. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come. Lord, that the words that I speak would be your words. And that the people would hear what you have heard and what you have sent forth for them to hear this morning. So we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the first three verses of Jude, we learn several things. We learn who wrote it, we learn who he wrote it to, and we learn why he wrote it. This morning, I want to focus on the who he wrote it to because he says it twice, and I think it's important. I believe the opening verses of Jude draw a dividing line in the sand, and it's a dividing line between those of us who believe in the gospel and those of us who do not. It is those who are saved by the grace of God and those who are not saved by the grace of God. If you look, he says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, he says, he wanted to write to us about our common salvation. He is talking directly to believers. And what this means is if you are not a believer, he is putting you on the outside. And it is not him, but it is Jesus and God the Father who are doing that. If you look in Matthew 10, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemy will be those of his own household. I do not believe that Jesus is telling us that we are to be against our families in flesh and blood. I do not believe that he is calling us, when he says that he's come to set a man against his father, that we are to actively engage in a physical fight with our fathers. But I believe what he says is he is coming to make a division or a separation in an abstract way. And what I mean by that is we are believers in Christ. If we are followers of Christ, we have been given a new heart. Ezekiel 36, the Lord says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
When the Lord gives us a new heart, our affections become different. The things that we want, the things that we strive after, strive after, the things that we've once went to for our peace and for our fulfillment are no longer those same things. And when you stick that in the midst of a family or when you stick that in the midst of others who are not believers, we will look very strange. Imagine if you're in a family who used to gather around the television and watch off-color TV. Now you're the one in that family who doesn't agree with that. And you actively live out your faith and you are not engaging in those activities because you do not feel that they are edifying to you. Imagine what your family is going to say to you as you do that. That is going to cause a dividing line. It's not one that you've actively sought for. It is just the nature of being given a new nature. I believe that the division that Jesus speaks about comes from that new heart. The things that you used to enjoy, you will no longer enjoy. Your attitudes and your actions will change. So friends, if you have never repented and turned from your sin, and as the Bible makes clear in Romans that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, if you have never repented of your sin, trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ through faith, then you are spiritually still dead in your sins. You are not a part of the family of God. But I want to let you know that if the Holy Spirit this morning is tugging at your heart, please hear the words of the psalmist. And we read the first part of this psalm this morning in worship. But Psalms 95, the second half of verse 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. At the very end, verse 11, he says, Therefore, I swore in my wrath that if you harden your heart, you will not enter his rest. So please don't leave here if you have not entered his rest. If you are not in the family of God, talk to somebody. But for those of us who have repented of our sins and for those of us who have embraced Jesus Christ through faith, then Jude's letter is a letter to us to contend for the faith. If you notice in verse 3 and 4, he, he finds it necessary to write appealing to us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints for certain people have crept in unnoticed. Jude's state of necessity in writing this letter is actually one that he feels himself is under pressure and in distress to write. That is the literal meaning of the word that Jude uses for necessary. Jude calls us to contend to make a strenuous or labored effort on behalf of the true gospel. But what I want you to see and make sure that we understand is this is not a letter to contend with the world for the faith. Notice what Jude says. He says that certain people have crept in unnoticed. It's no secret that today our faith is under attack. But again, I'm not talking about the attacks from outside of the church. And Jude's not either. Jude is talking about the liberalizing of our faith from within the church. And I believe that is most clearly brought out in this letter. So we need to get to a place where we as a church understand and prepare for the world to turn against us. We can't be shocked when the world turns against us. Jesus says in John 15 that if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, meaning Jesus, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. 
But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. We can't be surprised at the people pushing in on our faith, the world not understanding our message. We can't be surprised with the way that we live is in stark contrast with the world, and the world hates it. Jesus tells us that. But I believe one of the schemes that the devil is using against us as the church is to get us to focus on that conflict and not on the conflict that comes from within the church. We are ignoring that breakdown in our church. Not this church in particular, but the church as a whole. And we can't ignore that breakdown. I think Paul has this same idea in mind when he writes to Corinth. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul says, stop looking at the world. We expect them to live this way. We need to expect them to live this way. And Jude is saying the same thing. He's not talking about that external fight. You know, Paul even says it's God's job to judge the outside of the world. We're to be salt and light. If we do not associate with people who are living like this outside of the church, how are we ever going to get our message out? If we separate ourselves from the world, if we judge them, if we're critical towards them, how are they ever going to feel the love of Christ? They're not. But if we ignore what's going inside the church, then we have a major problem. Jude is warning of wrong living. He is warning of a lifestyle that is incompatible with a profession of faith. He has his sights set on those inside the church, not outside. And Jude is exposing wrong living. In Jude 4, Jude writes, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The Greek word translated sensuality is alsalgeia, and it is literally translated licentiousness. It is in the sense of sinful abandon, an indulgence in sensual pleasure unrestrained by convention or morality. What it comes down to is this. These people were doing whatever they wanted to do and using God's grace as a means to cover and as a license to do what they wanted. I think the NIV brings this out a little bit better. If you have it, it reads, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. This statement that Jude makes at the end of, of Jude 4 when he states that these people were denying our only Master and Lord, I don't think he was, they weren't denying Jesus Christ had come. They weren't denying Jesus Christ as the person. They were denying that his coming had any effect on their life. They were denying that as they received grace that that didn't mean something. That they could receive his grace as fire insurance and do whatever they wanted. When you are given a new heart, when the Lord affects you, actually affects you, when you're converted, as we've been hearing downstairs over the last six weeks, it will change you. This denial 
was not in saying that Jesus Christ didn't come. It was denying the lordship of him in their life. They may not have been saying it, but their lifestyle demonstrated it. The word translated master is used as a sense of a person who has general authority. Again, when they're denying the master of Jesus Christ, they are denying that Jesus Christ upon a believer has absolute ownership and unrestrained power. Jesus says in Matthew 7 that we are to be aware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He says that we will recognize them by their fruits. So people can come claiming whatever they want to come, but if they're not living out that message, they are denying the very message that they are preaching. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Judas saying that, again, Paul in, in Romans 6, he makes this argument that are we to sin because we are no longer under the law? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves as anyone, to, as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Paul and Jude understand this. You know, he's, Jude's looking at these false teachers and they're living in a way that they're denying Jesus Christ. They're denying the grace that they give him. They are continuing to live in sin. And Paul, in his argument, is saying, if they're continuing to live in sin, they're st- still a slave to sin. They're not a slave to righteousness as those of us in Christ are. We need to be watching the fruits of people's lives and not just accepting the message and not looking at the messenger. Again, look at verse 17 in, in, what, in what Paul says. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. This goes back to what, is, what Ezekiel says, what the Lord says to Ezekiel in 36, that he's going to give us a new heart. And from that new heart, I will put my within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. People can claim what they want to claim, but if they have not been given a new heart, eventually it will come out. This is not a fake it till you make it ordeal. Your heart will eventually come out. As a true believer in Christ, someone who has been given a new heart, we we not actively persist in sin or in a disobedient lifestyle, and we need to understand that. As a church, we need to hold people accountable, and we need to speak the truth in love. This is where I believe that loving judgment was coming into place that I said earlier. It's a loving judgment because I believe when Jude writes this letter, it's loving because judgment is coming. If you notice in Jude 5 through 7, he reminds us of the judgment that the Lord brought upon three instances in the Old Testament. The most unloving thing I believe that we could do is to allow someone who believes they're saved or claims to be saved to continue to live in a pattern of sinful living and not warn or try to correct them. I believe these three instances that Jude lays out is very clear. But I want you to hear what the Lord says to Ezekiel in Ezekiel three seventeen through 21. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way. In order to save his life, that wicked person shall die from his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. 
But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live. Because he took warning, and you, have, you will have delivered your soul. And the Lord writes to Ezekiel, he is telling us... That, He's telling Ezekiel that he has to warn the nation of Israel against their ungodly ways because judgment is coming. God's not just going to let them go. But he's telling Ezekiel that it's his job to warn them. And it's our job as believers to warn other believers of the sin and the patterns of sin that we see in their lives. But not only that, it's also our job to warn unbelievers as well. If we don't, we might not be able to change them. We can't change them. But if we don't warn them of the impending judgment, their blood is on our hands. We have a responsibility to the world. We have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ to warn them of the sin that is in their life. And I believe Jude is showing us that very clear. He's telling us to contend for the faith, and then he tells us why. Judgment is coming. Listen, we have lost the doctrine of hell, and we have lost the doctrine of God's wrath because we are afraid to scare or offend anyone. We have lost these doctrines because they're not easy to hear, and they are even harder to preach. But do not be mistaken. The day is coming when Christ will appear and he will be appear on the clouds. And when he does, Revelation tells us that he is coming to bring his recompense with him to repay each one for what he has done. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. But listen to what he says. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and anyone who loves and practices falsehood. The word that John uses for recompense means payment. It's a payment for worthy acts and it is retribution retribution for wrongdoing. Jude references those three examples and they should stand as an example for us. As Paul writes in Galatians, that we should not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And then again, after God gave Moses the second time the tablets, after he broke them the first time because Israel had the golden calf, Moses drops the tablets. God gives him the one and he makes this pronouncement. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. A lot of times we stop there. That's a picture of God that we love. We love the picture of God that is abounding in steadfast love. We love the picture of God uh, slow to anger. We love the merciful and gracious God, and they are all good, and they are all wonderful things. But we cannot miss the last half of that verse. He will by no means clear the guilty. He visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. So please don't ever lose sight of the glorious and gracious and merciful God. But with that glorious and gracious and merciful God, do not misplace the wrath of God that is coming against all unrighteousness. If we miss that, if we fail to see 
the punishment that is coming to unbelievers, we will have no driving force to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's no sin, if there's no wrath, the gospel makes absolutely no sense. But we must be aware that the wrath is coming. And I believe that is what Jude is warning us to. That's why we need to contend for the faith. So brothers and sisters, if somebody approaches you and they bring sin to you and they want to confront you on a sin, please take it lovingly. And brothers and sisters, if we go to someone and look at sin in their life and point out sin in their life, it must be done from a position of love. It cannot be done from a position of, well, I'm better than you, so I'm going to point out your sins. None of us is worthy of the grace that we have received. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and it is only by the grace of God that we are saved. Colossians 3, 5 through 9, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Friends, hell is a very real place. And Jude is calling us to contend for the faith so that we can keep a close watch on ourselves and on our teachings. And we're told to persist in this, for by doing so, we will save both ourselves and our hearers. So God's judgment and punishment against sin and unrighteousness, I believe, is the reason that Jude wrote. He is telling us to contend for our faith, but not only for our sake, but for the sake of those who we come in contact with, for the sake of our friends, for the sake of our families. We must not lose the gospel of Jesus Christ and what comes with that, a changed heart and a changed life. Because if we do, there will be a lot of people who think they're saved, but who will wake up on that day of judgment and find themselves eternally separated from the love of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this message of warning that Jude has given us. And Lord, I pray that as we go forth and proclaim your message of the gospel, that we also do not lose sight of your judgment. Father, but that we do it in a loving way, that we don't just go up to people and pronounce judgment on them and then leave them there with that. Father, that in our love for them, we show them the sins and the errors of their ways, both inside the church and outside the church, but primarily, Father, that we keep a close watch over each other. Lord, that as we fellowship with our brothers and sisters in small groups, in one-to-one discipleship, Lord, whatever it may be, whatever our discipleship relationships look like, Father, that we would be in a position of humility where we can confront one another. And when we're confronted, we can accept it in love. And we can see that this brother or sister sitting across from us is not coming to us to condemn us, but they are coming to us to help protect us from condemnation. Father, that as we recognize sins in our own lives, that we can call them out in ourselves, that we can seek the help of a brother or sister to call them out in us. If we have questions, if we have doubts, if we have deep areas of sin in, in our hearts that we are, have hidden, that we would reach out to someone and say, I need your help. I need you to help me through this. Father, understanding that we must contend for the faith because at one point in the future, it will no, we will no longer have the ability to contend for the faith. Father, as Galen shared, life is but a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what this afternoon holds. 
Lord, we don't know what the drive home from church holds. So, Father, I pray that anyone who hears my voice, if they are unsure whether or not they're saved, that they would not leave this place until they are sure. Father, if there's sin in our lives, send us the Holy Spirit. Send the light of your Holy Spirit, the light of your word of truth into our hearts. Reveal those deep recesses in our lives that we are ashamed to share, that we are ashamed to even see. Father, I don't want anyone to miss the home going. I don't want anyone to miss sharing with eternity, in eternity with you, to be forever in the presence of a holy and righteous God. But Lord, that requires that we do the dirty work, that we look at the sin in our lives, and that we fight daily to deal with it in the power of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, as we leave this place As we go back to our lives, as we go back to our weekly grind, I pray that your spirit would go with us, that your spirit would minister to us, Father, that we we would immerse ourselves in your word so that we have the ability to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Amen.